kind of world we live in today, talk is so everywhere in the electronic communication, especially in the social media age. It's like the world is filled with talk. And because it's so full of talk, it's almost as if it doesn't matter that much what we say. If you look at the, the rants and the tirades that people go on when they talk about each other and friends and so on and so forth, it can almost be like it really doesn't matter that much what you say. But there's a verse in the Bible that causes us to think twice. It says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. In that wonderful old Jewish proverb, God is giving us a really important understanding of just how battle what we say is. Life and death. I mean, that's about as far apart as you can get. Life and death are in the tongue. As I contemplated that this week, I began to think about the mistakes I've made with my mouth in speaking. And I don't know if any of you can, can you know, sync up with me on this, but I began to think about two kinds of mistakes I've made in regard to what I say. One is saying something I shouldn't say, and number two is not saying what I should say. So as I, as I thought about that getting ready for this talk, I thought, well, which of the two is worse? Saying things that I shouldn't say or not saying the things that I should say. And here's what I came up with. At first blush, I went with the first one because I thought about all the trouble I'd gotten into by saying things that I shouldn't say. Um, but as I thought about it longer, I began to realize that although I've probably made a lot more mistakes in that first category, the mistakes I've made in the second category are much bigger. You know, when I say things that I shouldn't say because of the kindness of people in my life, when I've gone back to them and I've asked for their forgiveness or I've clarified what I meant to say, most of the time people have had a better understanding. And it's, here's the thing. When we say something we shouldn't say, often we get a second chance to make it right. But what I began to think about was the times when I should have said something and I didn't and how that frequently I didn't get another chance to make that right. Some opportunity was lost. I left someone in jeopardy, and they went out and made a mistake that couldn't be undone. Let me give you an example. When I was in high school, Mary Alice and I, were, we were just going on a date or something, or probably we were just going to McDonald's. And as I was driving toward a main highway that we went up and down in the southeast side of Fort Worth, I came across a friend walking, and I knew he had a car. I'd gone to school with him since we were in elementary school. And so I pulled up beside him, and I said, Hey, David, anything wrong? Do you need a ride? He said, Yeah, my car broke down. He said, I was going home. And I said, Hop in the back seat. I'll take you home. And honestly, as we came up on the Mansfield Highway, it was as if, and don't get me wrong, God didn't say anything out loud, but it was like God was saying, Talk to David. You don't know where he is spiritually. You don't know if he knows God or doesn't know God. At least invite him to church. But I hate to tell you this, but I choked at that moment. I didn't say anything. I took David home and dropped him off. At almost that same spot, one week later on the Mansfield Highway, David ran his motorcycle into an automobile and went off into eternity. For over 40 years, I thought about that moment when David was in the backseat of my car, and I should have said something, but I didn't. Have you ever found yourself in the gap between maybe I should say something and I should have said something? I want to talk to you about that gap today in the second talk in our generation, in our breakout series on Generation Breakout, and I want to talk to you about Say It, Say It. Last week, you met Generation Zombie and Generation Breakout, and what we saw was that Generation Breakout is identified by the belief that God is right, and we're going to be exploring the, center, the, the secrets of Generation Breakout. But just so that we can get caught up, I want to take you back to last week's talk for just a moment and review just a little bit so that if you weren't here last week, you'll know what I'm talking about when I talk about Generation Zombie and Generation Breakout. God's people, Israel, have been led from Egypt into 
the land that God had been promising to their ancestors. Starting with Abraham, God had said, I'm going to bring you into a land. I'm going to give it to you. You're going to take possession of it. It is going to be yours. And it's still theirs today, by the way. And we saw how that God did extraordinary things to get the children of Israel from Egypt into, well, right on the brink of the promised land. Uh, he sent 10 plagues and the Egyptians let them go. They got to the Red Sea. They couldn't get across. God supernaturally opened the Red Sea. And then as Pharaoh's army chased them, God closed the Red Sea on Pharaoh and his army. As they got into the wilderness, the desert, they were hungry, but God gave them manna. They were thirsty. God gave them water out of a rock. They were hot in the daytime, so God gave them a cloud to give them a canopy. And at night, they were cold in the desert, and God gave them fire in the sky to warm them. So God did all these extraordinary things for them. But they got right up to a little town called Kadesh Barnea, which was on the border of the wilderness and the promised land. And it was at that moment that we met Generation Zombie. Because Generation Zombie choked at a moment of destiny. Two and a half to three and a half million people in the middle of the wilderness. And right on the brink of their destiny, the people pressured Moses to send 12 spies into the land. Now, they said they, said they wanted to send 12 spies to see the routes to go and what the cities were like. But in essence, let's be clear on something. They wanted to decide whether or not they wanted to obey God. They had a question in their minds, is God right? Well, they sent the 12 spies over, one from each tribe. And when the spies came back, they gave a unified report to Moses. And all of them agreed on three material facts. <clears throat> it's a good land. It's a prodigious land. And there are giants over there. All 12 agreed on those three facts. But then there was a division among the spies. Ten of the spies, and that, we meet them. They are generation zombie. Ten or eight, ten, of the spies said, we can't go into the land. We can't take the land because there are giants over there. And that's the moment I want to take you to because you have generation zombie saying we can't take the land. And you have two guys, Joshua and Caleb, who are the founding members of generation breakout, believing in their hearts that God was right and they could take the land. But there was a particular moment. And at this moment, you should understand that Joshua and Caleb have not spoken to the crowd. They've only given their report to Moses. And they're watching what transpires. I, I want to go to that moment where in the camp that night, there was this cacophonous sound of millions of people moaning and crying because they have come to believe that God is wrong about their destiny. Guys, i got to be honest with you. I haven't watched a lot of zombie movies, a lot of zombie shows, and, but I have watched a few. And the thing that always stands out to me, and maybe it's because I'm an auditory person, but what stands out to me about the zombies is the noise they make. Because it's always mournful, it's indecipherable, but they're all saying the same thing. And that's kind of what I see that night in the camp. I mean, now I, I've learned since then that that's called zombie mutter. And the reason why it's hard to understand is because it's their post-dead brain trying to form words. And because of that, there is a zombie lexicon. So if you're watching the shows and you don't know what they're saying, you can check out the lexicon and get it. But that night in the camp, that's what I hear. I mean, Generation Zombie is pouring out their moans, their indecipherable stuff, and they're saying to themselves and saying to the others, we can't take the land. It's at that moment that Joshua and Caleb are standing there asking themselves the question, should we say something? Should we speak up? Because it's very clear they've been outvoted 10 to 2 in committee. And beyond that, the majority is quickly forming against them. The majority is against their position. So the smart money, if you think about that specific, the mo that specific moment, the smart money is on being quiet. 
Joshua and Caleb, they'll have this issue. If God is right, shouldn't we say that God is right? In other words, if we believe in our hearts that God is right, shouldn't we articulate that position? But what's clear to Joshua and Caleb, and probably what's clear to you and me in the culture that you and I are living in, Joshua and Caleb know that if they say they believe God is right, that's not how the message is going to be taken by the crowd. They know if they speak up, their message is going to be uphill, unpopular, and it's going to be distorted. When Moses talks about this moment in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1, here's what Moses said. He said, you complained in your tents and you said, the Lord must, look at the next word, hate us. Hate? I mean, the Lord was the one who sent the plagues to let them go. The Lord was the one who opened the Red Sea. The Lord was the one who gave them manna and water and cover in the daytime and warmth at night. God was the one who did all these extraordinary things, got them right to the brink of destiny. But when God said something they didn't want to hear, they said, the Lord must hate us. Funny how that word gets thrown around, isn't it? And it still gets thrown around today. Because we understand, we live in a culture where if you say something people don't want to hear, they use the H word. You must hate us. But that's about six centimeters on the other side of insane. Because we all have people who disagree with us, disagree with our choices, disagree with the way we look at life, disagree with our politics, disagree with our faith, but we know they don't hate us. Or real clearly, that word is being used just as it was 3,000 years ago. It's being used as a manipulative ploy. By the way, the Hebrew word hate there is the word sane, which means to hate personally. They were saying God doesn't just hate us as a group. God hates us personally. So here's my point and the reason why I go here. Joshua and Caleb, as they're standing there trying to determine are they going to speak up and say something, they know that what they're going to say is going to be taken as hate speech. When you read Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, at that moment the Bible says the people cried all night. Don't you know there were people who came to Joshua and Caleb and said, Joshua and Caleb, don't you understand what you're saying is hurtful. It's hurting people's feelings. You're causing people to cry. What you're saying is divisive and it's not inclusive and it's hate speech. So I don't blame Joshua and Caleb for standing there wondering, do we open our mouths? Do we say something? And it could be that you and I are in that place today because we're seeing things in the culture that we don't think are politically correct, but it's like, well, if I say something, I'm going to be taken wrong and I'm going to be accused of being a hater. So maybe I should just be quiet. But the Bible has something else to say. It has something to say about generation breakout talking to generation zombie. In Proverbs 24, verse 11, Solomon wrote, Save them as they stagger to their death. So there you have it. Joshua and Caleb are caught right in between, maybe we should say something, and I should have said something. And even though they realize they're going to be taken wrong, there is this teaching from God that says, look, if the zombies are staggering toward death, save them. Say something that changes the narrative. No, they take a deep breath, and they speak up. This is in Numbers chapter 14, verse 6. Joshua and Caleb tore their clothing. And they said to all the people of Israel, The land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he'll bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I think if they had stopped right there, New Spring, if they had stopped right there, they'd have been safe. 
Because they just basically were saying, we think it's a good land and we think we should go. Well, the crowd at that moment would have probably said something like this, knowing 21st century postmodern America. The crowd would have said, well, that's your truth. That, that's your truth. That works for you. So I honestly believe if they had just stopped right there and pushed the pause button, they would have been okay. But notice that Joshua and Caleb go on. They said, do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. And that's in verse 10 when the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. And why? Because Joshua and Caleb were clear on the fact that saying that God was wrong was tantamount to rebelling against God and cowardice. That's what got them in trouble. But here's my question for you. Were they haters? I mean, clearly, they said something that people didn't want to hear. And, and maybe the things that they said were unpleasant and uncomfortable at that moment. But were they haters? No. If the crowd had listened to them, they would have been rescued. Because you and I know what happens next. God shows up and says, hey... Everybody over 20 is going to die in the wilderness in the next 38 years, and I'm going to take generation breakout, all the 20s and under, and I'm going to take them into the land. So if they had listened to Joshua and Caleb, even generation zombie would have been rescued. And somebody could say, well, Mark, <clears throat> still looks like they lost to me. And to that point, they got outvoted in committee 10 to 2. And yeah, because of the choice of Generation Zombie, they too had to walk around in the desert for 38 years. But hear this, New Spring. They rescued Generation Breakout. And they rescued themselves. Because God said, everybody over 20 is going to die in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb. They rescued the next generation. And they rescued themselves. And guys, I want to tell you something. Those of us who believe God is right, if we don't say something, we're not going to rescue Generation Breakout, and we may well not rescue ourselves. I do find one thing kind of interesting. Do you realize that when they, went, when they eventually, 40 years later, would go into Canaan, Joshua and Caleb were the only guys their age. And I think that's interesting because usually young generation, don't, they don't necessarily listen to older guys. But I think this, one of the reasons why this young generation went on to break out and to live a golden life was I think it was really cool for them to have Joshua and Caleb there. Why did they follow Joshua and Caleb? Because when they were kids, they remembered that when everybody else was wimping out, Joshua and Caleb were bold and they spoke up and they realized they were going into Canaan because Joshua and Caleb were charter members of Generation Breakout. Are you in that gap between should I say something and I should have said something? We live in days of political correctness. I was just reading last week that the state of Tennessee, and by the way, they, they, they backtracked on this, but the state of Tennessee, in order to have more gender-inclusive language, was deciding that in their court documents as related to kids that they would no longer use the term mother and father, that they would use the term parent one and parent two. And they backtracked on that. As one woman said, I didn't endure hours of labor to be parent one. <laughs> we have a lot of zombie mutter today, don't we? You know what? Here's the thing. When, when, when I speak, and by the way, guys, you've got to realize I am the dumbest guy in the world because I pastor a mega church. We had like 6,500 people here last weekend, and we're building a building. The smartest thing I could do is not talk about these kinds of things if I wanted to be popular today. But I'm concerned about something more than that. 
See, when, when I hear about the world today and, and our views, what people tell me is, Mark, you don't understand. This is an evolving culture, and, and this culture is evolving and changing. That is so zombie. I mean, this culture, where we are today, the world's been here many times. I'm reading through Isaiah in my private devotions, and, and several days ago, I came across Isaiah 59, and I want to read this to you. Listen, our courts oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. Listen to this next line. Honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. Good morning, America. How are you? I was just reading this morning that in the city of Denver, they're holding up a Chick-fil-A in the airport, stalling it because Chick-fil-A doesn't offer a full-throated support of same-sex marriage. And so now it's been said because of that, they, they can't have Chick-fil-A there. I mean, we're, we're living in a crazy world. But all that being true, here's my question. Do you want to be right today or right tomorrow? And this is especially important for parents. Do you want to be popular today, or do you want to be ultimately proven right? When I look at Joshua and Caleb, I see four points about their situation. Number one, they were in the minority. Number two, their point of view was front-loaded with difficulty because they were saying we should go into the land and face the giants. Number three, they made people uncomfortable. But number four, it offered enormous possibilities. Can we go through that one more time? They were in the minority. Their position was front-loaded with difficulty. Their message made people uncomfortable, but it offered enormous possibilities. When I think about the other 10 spies, they were in the majority. There was an easy near term because they're saying we shouldn't take on this challenge, but it offered no future because the best hope they could offer was going back to Egypt. My, ask, my question for us today, you want to be right today, you want to be right tomorrow. I've been in this situation so many times. Um, many years ago, old location, a woman came into my office, and she was married to a fine man, but she had sort of fallen for another guy. And so basically, she was in my office to tell me why she felt like it was perfectly okay for her to leave a very fine man and to hook up with this other guy. Now, I knew at that moment what she wanted was she wanted me to stamp her parking ticket. She wanted me to say, that's okay. But I've, I've always told us, you cannot flip God off and win. And so I told her the same thing. I said, listen, you, you can't do this. It isn't going to end well. Later on, she went ahead and left her husband and married this guy. And then later on came back to my office and told me this. She said, I was so furious at you when you told me that I could have bitten a nail into. But she said, I should have listened. And I'm so sorry. And I can, I can tell you happily, this lady from that time on has walked with God and lived, lived an overcoming life. Now, here's my question for you. Was I better off telling her what she wanted to hear that night, or, what, or was I better off giving her a message that she could come home to? That's all I'm saying. Do you want to be right today or right tomorrow? We need to speak up. If you believe something, if you believe God is right, say it. I read this just this morning. In, in Brandon High School in Mississippi, the high school band was going to present their halftime show. This just last Friday night. And in the tunes that they were going to play for their halftime show was going to be How Great Thou Art. But because of a judge's decision about not allowing prayer in that school district in an elective assembly, they were told that the band was told that they could not take the field because they were going to play How Great Thou Art. 
at that halftime, just Friday night, there was a hum that began to come up from the crowd. And then one person stood up and began to sing. And it wasn't long before a dozen and then 20 and 30 and then hundreds of people rose to their feet and sang, How Great Thou Art. Listen, guys. I know this is not a popular message, but it's time for us to quit listening to the zombies if they're wearing a black robe or if they're on, you know, if they're on our favorite television show. It's time for us, if you believe something is right, say that it's right. Well, somebody could say, well, Mark, I want to say the right things, but how do I know what to say because things are so complicated? Well, that's true. And, and you and I are not going to know that everything that God has said, but just notice this. Joshua and Caleb didn't say, we're right or we're better than you. They just said, God is right. And that's important because I'm wrong about many things. But Scripture says, even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the Scriptures say about him, this is about God, you will be proved right in what you say. Although God's point of view may be feeling in the minority today, God will ultimately be proved right in everything he says. Let me go to another place, though. Because I have met many Christians who speak the truth, but they speak it in such a hurtful, hateful way that's pushed away. And guys, remember this. You can be truthful, but you can't be mean. You can't be mean. The Bible tells us about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14, that he was full of grace and truth. You know, he spoke the truth, but he did it in a gracious, loving way. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible says, we will speak the truth in love. One of my closest friends is a leader of another faith group, not a Christian. But we're, we're buddies. We go to lunch together. We actually talk about sermons together. I've spoken in his house of worship. He has been here for events. And, and we are dear friends. We go to lunch. We eat in each other's homes. And I'll know he knows, as I know, he could pick up the phone right now if he needed anything. He'd call me, and I'd be there in a few minutes. And yet we disagree over the most important question in life, which is, who is Jesus? But over time, we've talked to each other about this. I talk to him, and he talks to me. And we're, comfort we're comfortable. I mean, we're, I mean, I have got friends who are non-theists, and we go to lunch together, and we chat, and we talk, and we have a good time. And, and we disagree about the most fundamental issues in life. All I'm saying is this. You and I should never make someone our enemy because they disagree with us, and hopefully people will be wise enough to make, not make us our enemies because we disagree with them. We need that dialogue. We need to be able to speak freely what we believe without it being in a hostile situation. Well, let me go a completely different direction now. Because I have a hunch I'm talking to a lot of people here today who would say, Mark, I'm perfectly willing to say what God says, but I don't know a whole lot about it. So should I be quiet until I learn everything the Bible says? No, for a couple of reasons. Number one, like me, you'll be a student the rest of your life on that. And number two, the most important things God wants you to say, you can say right now. There are three things God wants you to say. Two of them are verbal, one is nonverbal. But the three most important things God wants you to say, anybody can say today. So I want to close by talking about those three things you can say. Here's the first one, to agree with God about Jesus. When I was a kid growing up, I was always taught that the salvation verse of the Bible was Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Salvation is, is a theological term, but basically what it means is not going to hell and going to heaven. That's a pretty big thing. 
So in the Bible, if you want to look at the instructions for how do you miss hell and go to heaven, you can find the simple answer in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And I want to read that to you now, and I want you to see how important one statement is that we make. In Romans 10, verse 9, the Bible says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart, that's your inner person, that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Isn't that interesting? Nothing about joining a church, nothing about giving money, nothing about even lifestyle there. It's just simply, if you want to miss hell and go to heaven, then you believe in your inner person that Jesus is God's substitute, that he died in your place, that he's Lord, and you confess with your mouth. Now, that's such a big text. I wanted to break it apart and look at the original language. It's written in Greek. We have an English translation. I want to make sure that we really understand what God is saying on this subject, considering that the outcome is so big. To confess, the Greek word is homologais. It's really two words jammed together, which means to agree together verbally. In other words, when I confess that Jesus is Lord, it's not, my, my confession itself is not what makes it powerful. What makes it important is that I agree with God. You remember last week we said that faith is the same thing as saying God is right. So when I confess that Jesus is my Lord, I'm agreeing with God, and it's God's Word that makes it powerful. But when I sync up my heart with God's Word and I speak that Jesus is my Lord, it has powerful and eternal consequences. Number two, the second thing God wants you to say isn't verbal. Experts say that somewhere between 60 and 90% of our communication isn't verbal. And this next one is not something you say, but it's something you actually do with your body. We're, um, we have a watermark weekend coming up. I think the 30th is the last time to sign up for this particular watermark. Watermark is a baptism ceremony. And one of the things that we discover is that people who have faith in Jesus take this step of baptism. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the Bible says, those who accepted his message were baptized. Now, this is not a message on baptism, but real quickly, I want to give you a thumbnail sketch of what baptism is in the Bible. When Paul gives us the gospel, when he, when he explains to us what the good news is, he says the gospel has three components, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's what you need to know in order to be saved, death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is a depiction that God invented to show the death, burial, and resurrection. As in baptism, you will see someone lower below the water showing death and burial and brought up out of the water showing resurrection. You know what's cool about this? I've been in services around the world where I didn't, I didn't understand a word that was being said, but I could always participate in a baptism ceremony because I knew that person was identifying with Jesus Christ. You know, if I see someone baptized and they are put below the water showing death and burial and they brought up out of the water showing resurrection, I know who they follow because there was only one person who died, who was buried, and who rose from the grave. Number two, Baptism is going public with your faith. It is showing that you've made a, a decision to follow Jesus Christ. In New Spring, all the baptisms in the Bible happened after salvation. See, baptism is a testimony. It's like a wedding ring. If I put a wedding ring on before I get married, that's kind of cheesy. But if I put one on after I get married, then it's, it becomes an external visible testimony of an of a invisible change. 
And that's what baptism is. And the reason why I say that, many of us belong to a faith channel in which we were baptized when we were infants. And that's all because in the second and third century of Christianity, there was a, a mistake that started being made. There was the idea that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That isn't true. But when people began to believe that, they thought, maybe we better baptize our babies. And so that's why we were baptized. And you say, well, Mark, did my parents make a mistake? No, no, they were just acting on their faith. They were just inside their headlights acting on the faith that they had. And they, they meant well. But here's the thing. When you study Scripture, you'll discover that people who were baptized, they got it on the right side of their salvation. Their baptism became a testimony of their internal change. And I want to make this clear. Somebody could say, well, Mark, do I have to be baptized to go to heaven? And the answer to the question is no. Because we see the thief on the cross. He never had a chance to be baptized. And yet Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise today. But I want you to think about something. If for some reason someone physically can't be baptized, that's a little different from someone saying, I don't want to be. Wouldn't you agree? Let me, give you an, let, me, let me talk about the wedding ring a moment. Suppose a couple comes to me and they say, Mark, we would like for you to marry us. And I say, okay, I will. And when I'm, in that, I, when I'm in that session in which I'm asking them how they want their wedding to flow, I get to that point about the rings. And the groom kind of looks down at the floor and says, Mark, I, 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 we're just kind of broke right now. We just love each other, and we want to get married, and we don't have the money for rings. Am I not going to marry them? Oh, of course I'm going to marry them. They, they, they just they don't have the money for rings, so we'll leave that part out of the ceremony. But suppose I'm up on the stage and there's a bride and a groom before me and I ask the groom, do you have a symbol of your love for your wife? And he holds up his ring and I take it and talk about it and then I hand it to him and we start going through the ring formula and I ask her, will you receive this ring? And she says, no, I don't think I want to. I just don't want to wear the ring. I don't want anybody to know that I'm married and I don't want anybody to, um, I, it's just a private thing. Now guys, I want to tell you something. I've never been there before. I've probably done several hundred, maybe five, six hundred weddings. I've never had a bride or groom refuse to take the other person's ring. But let me tell you what I would do. I, don't, I mean, I'm, I'll regret that a lot of money's been spent for that moment, but I'm out. I'm going to walk off the stage because I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> so you, you get the distinction I'm drawing. If someone for some reason can't be baptized, I believe God understands that. On the other hand, if it's just... I don't want to get wet in front of people. That's a different thing. <laughs> let, let me take you to the last one. And, and here's the thing. If the most important thing you can say to God is agreeing with him that Jesus is your Lord, this is the most important thing you can say to your friends. You say, Mark, if you could go back and have David in the car with you one more time and you had a chance to talk to him, what would you say to him? Guys, please listen to me, because I know I'm talking to a lot of you. You say, Mark, I've only been a Christ follower for a few weeks, and I don't really know anything about the Bible, and I'm scared to death. If I talk to my friends about God, they're going to ask me questions I can't answer. Well, put her there, partner, because people ask me questions I can't answer. But here's the most important thing you can say anyway. The most important thing you can say to anyone about God is to tell them your story. See, people can disagree with your theology, they can argue with your ethics, but no one can challenge your story. If God has saved you, if God has done something for you, if he's healed you, if he's brought you out of difficulty, if he's given you a second chance, 
Tell your story, because here's the thing. Intellectuals can dispute your ideas, but no one can challenge your story. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, it's actually given to us several times in the Gospels. But like Jesus is walking, and he's got his posse with him, and then on top of that, he's got a whole bunch of, he's got a huge crowd, hundreds, maybe thousands of people there are wanting to be healed, or they're wanting to get close to him. And so... A lot of stories are happening all at once. There's a little girl who's sick, 12 years old, and her dad wants Jesus to come heal her, and then she'll die while he's on the way, and that's going on. And, you know, hundreds of people bumping and jostling Jesus, trying to get close. But in this crowd is a woman, and she's dying. For 12 years, she's been hemorrhaging blood. And that not only is a, an illness that will prove to be fatal eventually, it's, there's also a stigma attached in that culture. Because nobody can touch her, and she can't touch anybody. Nobody can lay where she's laying. Nobody can sit where she sat. She is not only sick and dying, she is a social pariah, according to the times. And then beyond that, she's flat broke. I mean, this is a culture that values money. And so she's flat broke, and she spent, the Bible says, she spent every penny she's got on doctors and kept getting worse. And she's in the crowd. She shouldn't be. <laughs> By the way, people look at things, but she's in the crowd anyway. And she says to herself, and we read this in Mark's account of this, she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Now, to you and me, that might not mean anything. And for a lot of years when I read that, I didn't understand. I just thought she came up with the idea, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be okay. What I didn't realize for a long time, there was a Jewish prophet in the Old Testament who had prophesied about the coming of Messiah. And he had said, when Messiah comes, he will be so powerful, he will have healing in his wings. <laughs> Every once in a while, somebody will write a song about that as though Jesus has wings like angel wings. Not, that's not at all what it meant. To the prophet, and what he was writing about was the wings of, 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 his, of his robe, the fringes of his robe. And this woman was just acting on the Bible that she had. She had read the Jewish prophet that said, when Messiah comes, he will have healing in the fringes of his robe. So she just said to herself, if I can just touch the fringe of his robe, I will be okay. And look at what happened. In Mark 5, 29, immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she'd been healed of her terrible condition. Well, you and I, now knowing the dynamics of the situation, she's thinking to herself, wow, this is wonderful, but this is going to be God of my secret." I did this, I touched, I got healed, I'm going to just like back out of the crowd. Until Jesus speaks. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it. It wasn't me, I didn't. It wasn't me, I didn't touch you. And Peter said, I love how Peter's always trying to educate Jesus. <laughs> you know, Jesus is the son of God. John said nothing was made that he didn't make. I mean, he is, he is God, king of glory. But for some reason, Peter, this guy who is a fisherman, he just is always out to just straighten Jesus out. Master, he said, the whole crowd is pressing up against you, and you're asking who touched me. Well, I wish I knew how to preach. Because Jesus said, somebody deliberately touched me. Now, here's the thing. Thousands of us at New Spring will be in church this weekend, and thousands of us will sing the songs and listen to the message. But there are some of you that won't be enough for because deliberately, oh, I'm in overtime. Is that okay?
some of you are going to touch Jesus because you're desperate. You came in today and you're so desperate with what's going on in life. It ain't going to be enough just to sing the songs and just listen to this text and give a talk. You got you to gotta touch. I mean, you're so desperate for Jesus, you've got to touch him. And I don't mean touch him physically, but by faith and in prayer. Jesus said, somebody deliberately touched me. Somebody went out of her way. Somebody did it on purpose. For I felt, Jesus said, healing power go out of me. When the woman realized she couldn't stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees before him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she touched him and that she had immediately been healed. Daughter, he said to you, your faith, we saw last week, faith is God is right. Basically said, your God is right has made you well. Go in peace. But guys, there's one line out of Luke 8.37 that just gets all over me and I love it. It says, the whole crowd heard her explain why she touched him. Well, you know, that would have been embarrassing, wouldn't it? Because she wasn't supposed to touch him. And it was embarrassing not only because of her illness and the stigma attached to it, she had to admit she was flat out broke. But the Bible says the whole crowd heard her explain why she touched him. Listen to me. If you've ever been desperate and you've deliberately reached out to God and he has helped you, you won't mind telling things about yourself that are embarrassing and difficult. You won't mind telling people how much trouble you were in because God has brought you out and you're not where you used to be. And you will be very happy for the whole crowd to hear you tell why you touched him. Here's my question. Has your crowd heard you tell why you touched him? I'm not talking about your church crowd. All of us have a church crowd. All of us have a non-church crowd. We have a God crowd and we have a non-God crowd. Has our whole crowd heard us tell? Not what our theology is or what our political positions are. Has the crowd heard us tell what God has done in our life? I'm two minutes over time. Well, let me just go here for a moment. A few moments ago, I talked about how to get out of this life and go to heaven. And you'll notice it's not in joining a church. It's not in community service. It's not even being a good person. It is that you believe in your heart that Jesus died for you and God raised him from the dead. And you invite Jesus to become your Lord. And then you confess, you agree with God. If that's never happened in your life, I can't end this service without giving you a chance to do that. I'm going to pray a prayer. If you want to join me, you can. You can say your own words if you want to. God's just looking for a big agreement. But if you want to pray with me, you can. Ready? Dear God, I am a sinner. I'm flawed and spiritually bankrupt. But I believe you love me anyway. And I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I ask you to forgive me and make me God's child. In Jesus' name. Well, like the woman who touched Jesus, if you just prayed that prayer, you prayed it quietly and by yourself. So I'm going to ask you to do something. And I know we're crowded, but if you just prayed to receive Christ, I have a gift for you. There's a a book I wrote in this packet and a DVD and a coupon for a new Bible. And if you go back to guest services right now, out there in the lobby, there's a little one back by the coffee shop. You can take a card that you got when you came in, the talk to us card. There's a place you can check and say, I prayed to receive Christ. And now I want you to take the second step of salvation. Would you just go back to guest services and all you'll have to say is, I prayed with Mark. I prayed to receive Jesus. And you will have confessed with your mouth and you'll get the packet and you can take it home with you today. Please do that before you leave. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being in the fourth service. We'll see you next weekend.